The George Washington College of Professional Studies Paralegal Studies Programs are a proud sponsor of the DC Bar. You'll study with the nation's leading experts and get the critical knowledge and skills you need to enter legal, corporate, healthcare, or government practice with confidence and acumen. Whether you are looking to advance in your career or make a change, GW's academic rigor is matched with hands-on, real-time learning that will help you stand out among your peers and rise to the next level in your profession. To request more information about this program, please visit the link found in the description for this episode. Hello, and welcome to Let's Brief It. I'm Eric Taroski, and my co-host, Naranjan Shashadri, and I are happy that you've joined us for another episode as we explore some of the most pressing topics facing today's legal profession and world through conversations with experts in the field. Among the crowd that President Biden addressed in his February 7th State of the Union were the parents of Tyree Nichols, the 29-year-old Black man who was killed by members of the Memphis Police Department last month following what began as a simple traffic stop. In his address, President Biden issued a call to Congress and the nation to take action by rethinking and revising the type of training police officers receive and by holding accountable those officers and departments who violate the trust of their communities. What happened to Tyree in Memphis, President Biden said, happens too often, we have to do better. Today, we are fortunate to be joined by an expert in the field of policing in America to discuss some of the challenges facing our current system, as well as some possible ways to reform and hold accountable both police departments and police officers. Joining us today is Christy Lopez, a law professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Before joining the Georgetown faculty in 2017, Professor Lopez was a deputy chief in the special litigation section of the Civil Rights Division at the U.S. Department of Justice. During her time at the DOJ, Professor Lopez led the department's work conducting pattern and practice investigations of various law enforcement bodies across the nation, including the Chicago Police Department and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Additionally, Professor Lopez led the investigation of the police department in Ferguson, Missouri, following the fatal police shooting of unarmed 18-year-old Michael Brown in 2014. At Georgetown, Professor Lopez teaches first-year criminal procedure and is the co-director of Georgetown Law's Center for Innovations and Community Safety. She also serves as an advisor on the American Law Institute's Principles of Law Policing, and co-chair of the Washington, D.C. Police Reform Commission from 2020 to 2021. Professor Lopez, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Professor Lopez, welcome to Let's Brief It. Community policing is such an important topic in light of the recent tragic killing of Tyree Nichols by officers of the Memphis Police Department. Your career has been focused on criminal justice reform and constitutional policing. What inspired you to pick this path? Well, thank you, Naranjan. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. I became interested in international human rights issues, actually, when I was in law school. And I was in the International Human Rights Clinic. And I'm not sure which came first, but I found myself really motivated by abuses of power by governments, right? You know, I, I came to law school knowing that I wanted to do something in the area of, of social justice or civil rights. But that's a very, very big field and, you know, lots of things to choose from. But I, I pretty quickly learned that, you know, you can, you know, for example, want to sue corporations for environmental violations or, or you know, any number of things. But I really felt moved by abuses of power by the state. 
And so uh, international human rights for me was a really attractive area, governments violating the most basic dignities and rights of, of their constituents. And I became involved in litigation that the law school brought against the U.S. government for its treatment of Haitian immigrants, people who were trying to come into the U.S. during the 90s, during a lot of tumult and violence in Haiti, but they were not allowed in because they were HIV positive and instead were you know, housed on Guantanamo, the U.S. military base. And we, you know, we did a lot of direct services. I went to Guantanamo to get affidavits from our clients. We, we filed suit in district court. We filed suit in the international courts. We brought, we argued cases before the Supreme Court. And one of the things that I really learned through that experience was that I really liked the process, uh, the, the relative certainty of a federal court as compared to a lot of the international human rights tribunals. And so that sort of made me start thinking about how I could do that type of work, but on the domestic front. And uh, so when I learned about the honors program at DOJ, which included a section that litigated on behalf of people who were incarcerated, that was very attractive to me because, again, it's a government, you know, potentially violating the most basic fundamental rights of, of people, of their own constituents. So I started doing that work. I came to Washington, D.C. in 1995 and began doing that work with the Civil Rights Division. And it was pretty immediately in the L.A. County jails investigating treatment of people with serious mental illness. I did a case in the Arizona women's prison system for uh, sexual abuse of female inmates. And, you know, just as I suspected, there were a lot of, you know, really rampant and, and egregious, horrifying violations of rights at the hands of the states. But I also learned something that was a little bit I hadn't necessarily expected, which is that it was very clear to me that the vast majority of the people in these facilities shouldn't be incarcerated at all. And that made me really start thinking about how they got there, which honestly, looking back, probably should have led me to prosecutors, but at the time led me to police. And so I started looking at police and how they do their work. And the section that I was working in had been recently given authority, 42 USC, one for one for one, the statutory uh, title has now changed, but that was the name of it. Never got a catchier title than that. And we began conducting these pattern or practice investigations of law enforcement agencies across the country. So it really was very much kind of a combination of an interest in the substantive area and learning sort of what was a good fit for me in terms of the kind of law I liked to practice. The United States has not ratified any of the major international human rights treaties. You have a background in public international law. How does international treaty law regarding human rights relate to domestic law focused on civil rights? Oh, I'm having exam anxiety now, Naranjan, because I don't actually remember much about any of, of that. But I, I do recall being surprised by that as well. And as you know, because we're not signatories, but honestly, even if we were, there's not much respect for uh, international human rights treaties among the U.S. courts. And I think that was partially the reason why I chose to go a different direction. But one of the things that's really impressed upon me is essentially the arrogance of U.S. courts and of the U.S., frankly, that we're not really very good about learning from what other people have done. And I think it unfortunately reflects how sometimes our hubris gets in the way of, of learning more generally. So that's sort of my big takeaway from that. You, it's just it's other countries, you know, American law students don't really usually understand this, but other countries have a lot more respect for international human rights treaties than we do. And going off of what you just said about how the kind of national arrogance of the United States can sometimes get in the way of learning what other countries do better than us, 
Do you see that playing out in a domestic setting as well as on the international landscape? I know you mentioned, for example, rates of incarceration in this country. So do you see a similar trend in terms of how policymakers and leaders in this nation don't necessarily heed some of the best practices or policies that we see being successful in other countries? Yes, I do think that we are slow to learn from other countries and very quick to say that we're different and incomparable. And I always found that interesting, no matter where I would go in the U.S., whatever prison or jail or police department, I would always hear, um, invariably, I would hear that, you know, well, we have to treat people differently, a little bit more harshly here than other places because the problem we're facing is, is different or worse than what other people are facing. And I think the analog to that for the U.S., at least as it pertains to policing, actually has a more of an element of truth to it, but it is also grossly overstated. And that is that there are a lot more guns in the United States than there are in a lot of other countries. And I do think that has a fundamental impact on policing and what is possible with policing in the U.S. Now, I do think that we can change policing much more than we know or admit, um, notwithstanding the number of guns. And so I think it's sometimes used as a, as a bit of an excuse. But I also think that there is some truth to the fact that with a country with this many guns, it really does change the equation a lot of times regarding how police go about their jobs. I'd be curious if you could say a little bit more about how the prolific number of guns in this country impact policing directly. Obviously, as much as we can read the tea leaves from recent Supreme Court decisions, it doesn't seem as though there's an easy path ahead to curbing the number of guns in this nation. So putting that aside, I'd be curious how you think that does shape the way that America polices differently than other nations, and what, if anything, we can do with that knowledge to still improve the way we police our communities? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the one thing that's important, probably this is a good place to make this clear, is it's really hard to talk about policing in America when you have 18,000 police departments at the state, local, you know, federal uh, levels, county levels, um, all across this very big country, rural, urban, large and small. And so, for example, you have some police chiefs who are speaking out against, you know, uh, a broader access to guns and are really saying they really want greater restrictions on guns. And then you have some individuals, mostly sheriffs, saying that they won't even enforce the, the limited uh, regulations that have been placed on gun ownership and carrying guns. So, you know, there's a, there's a very different, you know, every, with 18,000 departments, you really can't talk about policing writ large, but we'll, you know, we, we try to do so the best that we can. I think that the way that, that the presence of guns influences policing is you have to really understand the intersection with our the, the racialized history of policing, because it really, those two things combine to make a really toxic sort of recipe that kind of explains, at least in part, the gross disparities in injuring and killing people of color, especially Black people in the U.S. So when, you know, police are trained and, and, and you know, police are, are injured or killed on the job, especially by firearms, at a very, very low rate. And, you know, there's lots of reasons for that, but one of them is that they do do a lot of training for how to avoid that situation. And they are trained to always be thinking that someone might have a gun. And on top of that, if you talk, you know, just sort of with people who have been through police academies, many people will tell you that either formally or informally, a big part of their training, either informally before class started or the first, the first thing they did every day in class, they'll actually watch videos of officers being killed. Um, being shot during traffic stops or whatever. And so this is seared into the minds of officers um, in ways 
in some ways appropriate, but in some in in many respects go over the top and can make them hyper vigilant and very concerned that anybody at any time might have a gun. And then when you combine that with the way that we have not just criminalized poverty, we've done that, but in addition to that, we have tended to criminalize activities in areas where there are more black people. And you know, ever since from the Black Codes to Jim Crow and beyond, just really enforced laws and created laws that apply only to black and brown people. And so that has helped create what social psychologists have found to be an association between blackness and criminality and threat. And so you have police officers who are already primed to be overly concerned about being killed with a, with a gun and making an association between black people in danger and black people in crime. And so when you have a, that combination, it is a really, as I said, a toxic recipe for police overreacting and as we see, you know, a lot, uh, responding with too much force, including lethal force, in situations where the person just was not any threat at all. There is a lot of research about the role of implicit bias in human behavior. What can law enforcement agencies do in terms of training to combat the effects of unconscious racial bias in policing? And do you think putting young, inexperienced officers in the field compounds this problem? So I think that there is definitely, there's been a lot of evidence indicating that not only explicit bias and prejudice, which is obviously a problem, and there, there's, there's been an increasing study of actual you know, explicit strains of, of white supremacy, white nationalism running through police forces. But the other certainly broader problem is the implicit racial bias that police officers can hold that many people hold, and the way that that influences their policing. Um, it, what it, one of the things it causes you to do is to read danger in ambiguous situations. And that combines with, and Phil Goff and others have done work showing this, that that, that, that priming already combines with things like cognitive load, lack of sleep, a need to act quickly. All of those things combine to make officers more likely to act on the basis of inaccurate stereotyping coming from their implicit biases rather than on the actual threat. So that's a, that's a huge problem, and it's a very difficult problem to, to change. Um, we know that you or there seem to be indications that you can change that through, you know, sort of reshaping those experiences so you no longer have those associations. But really, probably, you know, that's, that's hard to do, and especially in our culture. So I think one of the, one of the things that people talk about is, it, or this is one of the reasons why people say, that we just need to take police out of the situations as much as possible, right? We need to remove the situations where police are there with a gun in an ambiguous situation. Unless you need to really have a gun there, because there's that kind of threat there, let's keep the gun out of the scenario altogether, which in the U.S. means keeping the police officer out of the scenario. Now, as to the age of the officer, there's been some showing that officers with college degrees use less force than officers without college degrees. However, one of the things I found really interesting about those studies is that they've never controlled for age. And so what looks like an impact of education might actually be, be an impact of age at the time that you're hired and trained to be a police officer. And that would be consistent with what we know about adolescent brain development, which doesn't really end until your mid-20s in most departments. Until very recently in California, you could become a police officer when you're 18. Now it's 21, and in a lot of places it's it's 18. It's either it's still 18, but or or 21. That's still pretty young. Your brain is still what we know, you know, from from what we know about adolescent brain development. You're still more inclined to uh, act impulsively, to not think about long-term consequences, to be overly influenced by your peers, 
And all of those things are maybe not things that are ideal to have in a police officer. There's obviously a lot in Ranjan's question and that answer that I'm sure we could talk about. One thing that I wanted to follow up on, going off of this idea of explicit and, and certainly implicit biases that affect police officers to varying degrees. Obviously, the most recent event making national news is the death of Tyree Nichols at the hands of police officers in Memphis, Tennessee. They have charged five former police officers uh, related to Tyree Nichols' death, and all five of those officers were Black. I'm curious to hear your take on what we need to be doing to correct some of these you know, reactionary policing influences you're talking about, aside from, I think, what some people have fallen back as a scapegoat dancer of hiring a more diverse police force, because if what we've seen in Memphis shows anything is that clearly that is not the panacea for all woes that are created by policing. Yeah, I think from from what we know, having a diverse police force in terms of race, national origin, gender, you know, any number of, of dynamics is really important to having a police force that is more likely to treat people with empathy, be innovative and creative, be willing to question what other officers are doing. We know that. And there's and there's been some research that shows that in Chicago, at least, that black officers and female officers did use, you know, less force than white officers. There's also research showing that when a department gets to a certain percentage of black officers, there are fewer shootings of black people by the police department. Um, it's a little hard to know, like, how all that works. And, the, you know, the data is, you know, there's a lot more research that needs to be done to better understand those dynamics. But there does seem to be some impact not only on sort of the general how policing is thought of and carried out in a department, but specifically on the use of force, you know, advantages to having a diverse workforce. But it's but it's also absolutely the case that it is not a panacea. And as Tyree Nichols' killing absolutely underscores, Black officers are as capable of behaving brutally. Or, you know, I don't, we don't know technically what, what the differences are by race, but certainly Black officers can behave brutally just as white officers can. Um, so you, you shouldn't think that if we hire Black officers, we, that is all we need to do um, in order to fix policing or even to remedy the you know, toxic effects of racism on policing. And there are a lot of people have been talking about you know, the way that Black officers can still be infected by um, white supremacy, can be infected by racism, and how the race of Tyree Nichols may have had as much to do with that, with their brutality as the race of the officers. You know, those are complicated issues, and we probably don't have time to get into them entirely here. But, but you know, for our purposes, you know, again, it is it is absolutely no panacea to hire black officers. But it is important to hire black officers, and there is some indication that they they may police less brutally, you know, as a whole. Again, at least in some contexts. But I think that another thing that that really should have us thinking about in terms of race is the the race of the officer is only one vehicle for how how race disparities in policing play out. You know, those officers were all part of a unit called Scorpion, which is, you know, the name alone tells you the mentality of that unit and a police department that would, you know, it would set up such a unit. And those sorts of units operate in mostly black and brown communities all around country. And that's not the decision of those individual officers. It's, that's a decision that's made at the department level, sometimes at the city level. And they have decided to police mostly black and brown communities in this way. At the even higher level, the city or county level, they have decided that the way we're going to deal with 
you know, issues of intergenerational, you know, poverty that has been caused by government policy decisions to a very large extent, that we were going to respond to a problem of, of an inadequate mental health care system, inadequate housing and education in many, many areas, is by containing the effects of that through policing, right? That also is, you know, there is a race component to that decision-making as well. And all of those things combine to not only result in not only the kinds of incidents like Tyree Nichols killing, but the less high-profile violence and abuse that occurs daily in many of these neighborhoods by, you know, units like Scorpion and others. So, Professor Lopez, you, you mentioned the, the Scorpion unit in Memphis that was disbanded following the death of Tyree Nichols. From what I understand, units like that with similar objectives are, are not unique to Memphis. I believe here in the district, um, there's a part of the Metropolitan Police Department called the Gun Recovery Unit that similarly is faced with trying to go out and rather aggressively take guns off the street. Following Nichols' death, I believe the ACLU of Washington, D.C. actually called on MPD to disband the GRU, which was not uh, suggested or received all that warmly by MPD leadership. I'm curious, both obviously your perspective as an academic, but also in your work on the D.C. Police Reform Commission, what your thoughts are about units like the GRU here at home in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, so my view of the units in D.C. was in part informed by my work investigating police departments across the country for several decades, beginning with the LAPD, my special investigation squad, and continuing through these similar units in places like New Orleans, Baltimore, and elsewhere. And everywhere I went, I found that these units were a font of the kind of brutal policing that was, was causing so much of the harm in communities. And everywhere I went, reforms were put in place to try to uh, make them more kinder and, you know, kinder and gentler. And I've just come to believe, or at least I have not yet seen uh, an effective way to run these units that allows their benefits to outweigh their costs. And so I did bring that perspective when I came into D.C. And we heard a lot of people complain when, it, when, when we had the police commission during, during police commission hearings, we heard from a lot of people complaining about both the gun recovery unit and the crime suppression teams, which each district has a crime suppression team. And it was, you know, the stories I was hearing were very similar to stories I've heard about these sorts of teams elsewhere. MPD denied that there were quote unquote jump out squads. People called them jump outs. I, I finally, you know, sort of said, look, look, I don't care what you call them. They are squads and people jump out of cars. So whatever you want to call them, this is what they're doing and it's causing friction. And, you know, it, in the end, we recommended in our report that MPD suspend those units until it could produce data that shows that they do more good than harm, which would be a fundamental requirement for all any policing you know, intrusion into our lives should be, is this practice doing more good than the harm it's causing? And they, they didn't suspend those teams. They've not provided that data. One of those crime suppression teams was involved in the car chase, um, the chase of the mocha that killed uh, Karan Hilton. An officer of that crime suppression team has now been prosecuted. Another one was prosecuted for obstruction of justice. And another one of the crime suppression teams has now been disbanded because of misconduct. So they're clearly a problem in D.C., as they have been a problem elsewhere, but the city has, has not acted to either demonstrate what utility they might offer or to disband them. 
What is the role of technology, such as the use of drones, for surveillance and crime suppression? Drones have been an area of increasing litigation in the area of policing. There was a Fourth Circuit case out of Baltimore brought by a group called Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, brought against the Baltimore Police Department for its widespread drone surveillance of protesters uh, after Freddie Gray was killed. And I think that litigation found that the that drone use did violate individuals' rights. And that, I think, is a recognition that you know, broad surveillance is just another form of coercion and control, um, and, you know, not a long-term solution, and maybe not even a, a short-term solution in most respects. So I expect there's going to be a pretty substantial tolerance for that kind of surveillance, but it's unclear because lots of courts think because they can imagine being surveilled themselves more readily, tend to be a little bit more skeptical of that particular police practice. But, but we'll see. We'll see what happens as people try to, you know, as a cast about for easy outs of the current situation. So we've talked a lot about the current state of policing and community relations in the country so far. I'd like to turn now to looking ahead and specifically looking at Georgetown's Center for Innovation and Community Safety. Um, so Professor, maybe if you could start by just giving us an overview of what that institute is and the work you do, and then we can discuss some of the recommendations that you and, and the organization have as we work to improve and address some of the issues we've been talking about. Sure, yeah, so the, the Center for Innovations and Community Safety, or we call it KICS, we try to address the issue of policing and public safety along two parallel tracks. One is recognizing that the scope of policing is too broad and we need to reduce that scope in order to have the kind of public safety we need. The idea, you know, there are, the police commission report was called Decentering the Police, and that's an ethos that really imbues our, our center's work as well, that we need lots of other actors involved in promoting community safety and community health. And right now we put all of our eggs in the policing basket, and it has not turned out well. The other track that our center works along is reducing the harms of policing itself. So recognizing that we have policing and are likely to have policing for the foreseeable future, how do we ensure that you know we do that cost-benefit analysis every time, that we make sure the practices that are in place do more good than harm, that we change the culture of policing so that it is less harmful. And there's a few programs we have along those lines. One is probably one of our biggest programs is called ABLE Active Bystandership for Law Enforcement. And this is a program that we began after George Floyd was murdered, and it really grew out of a program that was started in New Orleans to actually train officers how to step in and prevent other officers from violating individuals' rights and causing unnecessary harm. There's long been a requirement, a legal requirement, since 1957 in a case called Bird v. Brischke, that officers intervene as necessary to prevent a constitutional violations, at least in terms of excessive force. But there's never any training for that. And you might say, well, why do you need to be trained? And to some extent, that's a very fair point. You shouldn't need to be trained to step in. But what we know from social psychology is that many of us think we would step in to prevent harm when we really wouldn't, and that we can, if we're trained, we actually can get better at doing that. And so whether you should have to train police or not, turns out you can prevent some harm if you do. And so that is what we have been doing and really using, you know, giving them the skills to actually know how to, um, what words to use, what to do so that you can intervene and intervene successfully. We also know that culture is really important. Some officers, what ha you know, having those skills will just intervene. 
Other officers, no matter what you do, will never intervene. But a lot of officers, whether they intervene, it's going to be determined by the culture of the agency. Does it support that or does it punish that? We don't have the ability at ABLE to change that culture, to force that culture. All in, but we think it's really important. So we are trying to influence that and encourage that kind of culture as best we can in these agencies. And so, for example, we have removed agencies. We removed Orlando, Florida from the ABLE program because they were not training appropriately. And we thought that they had actually retaliated against one of the trainers who raised those concerns. That's antithetical to the ABLE ethos. And we wanted to make that clear. So those sorts of things you don't normally see in a training program, but we're really trying to do as much as we can to influence the culture because we know that's so so critical. And the other, another couple of programs that we're really starting up right now, um, one is involving hospital-based violence intervention. We think it's really important that you not shy away from the very real problems that communities are facing. And one of the problems communities are facing here in DC, especially communities east of the river that are predominantly black is, is gun violence. And so we are working with um, MedStar Hospital, which has a really promising, and, and there's a, several of these throughout the district, promising programs to actually intervene or try to reach the victims of gun violence when they come into the hospital to help them keep them safe and to help disrupt cycles of retaliatory violence, for example. And so that type of program has, there's some evidence that it, it's very successful across the whole country, but these projects have been developed and implemented across the country to varying degrees of success. And no one's quite clear what makes some more successful than others. But we think that one of the things that might make them more successful is if the police do not interfere with the relationship between the individuals who are victims of gun violence and the caregivers. Because there's a, there's a moment there we, that you have to build some trust. And if the police come in there and violate people's rights or treat people harshly, it can destroy that trust. So what we're trying to do is create some ground rules to get police to understand that, that we're all on the same page here, we all want to reduce gun violence, and the best way you can do that right now might be to step back, right? That's a hard thing for police to learn. So we're trying to develop some policies and some training that will help police get more on board with this idea, which should allow the program to be more effective. And then that should be, I, I think from what the evidence shows, that should be a better way of reducing gun violence than just this sole focus on arrest and prosecution, which, as you know, is you know very low clearance rates for homicides here in the district. And then another project that we are working on is really trying to learn from the really exciting and creative work for alternative first response that is happening all across the country. People are coming up with all sorts of different units to respond to persons in a mental health crisis or persons who are unhoused or people who are just having a bad day with their neighbor, right? And there's all these different kinds of programs, people being really creative, but they're, they're not talking to each other. There hasn't been an opportunity for them to learn much from each other. And so we are bringing them together. We're going to have a convening here in the spring. All students are invited to come see, you know, sort of how, what can we learn from what other people are doing in other communities to look at ways that we can effectively provide community safety, effectively promote community health that don't rely on police. So in those ways, we're trying to sort of build up these alternatives and, and address, you know, real community need, even as we try to hold police accountable on, on that other track. Thank you, Professor Lopez, for joining us today on Let's Brief It and for sharing your experience and insights into community policing. Thank you, Niraj, and thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. We would also like to thank our sponsor for this episode, the George Washington University's Paralegal Studies Program. To learn more about that program, please check out the link in the description to this episode. 
The DC Bar Law Student Community strives to engage and support law students before you graduate and expose you to the tangible benefits of joining the DC Bar and DC Bar communities. Curated programming allows law students to participate in substantive content programming, leadership trainings, networking with practicing attorneys in fields of interest, writing opportunities, and other activities designed to expand your legal education beyond the classroom. Make an investment in your legal career by joining the law student community. To learn more, visit us at www.dcbar.org or email communities at dcbar.org. We look forward to hearing from you.